Good morning, historians from around the internet. Welcome back to the Old History Podcast, here, which is a part of the Old History Project, where the goal is to just talk about history, make make it known, and you know maybe I'll educate somebody. So, let me turn my volume down here. So, there's nothing really been moving as far as uh, like projects in mind. I mean, there is there's a school out here. In Hamlin County, I'm going to go try and take a picture of it before it falls down. It's the old Panther Creek School. I'm going to try and take a picture of it. Post on the Facebook page. It's uh, you can see a little bit of it from uh, from the road, a little bit of the bell tower, but it's really in bad shape. I'd like to take a picture of it for uh, county history purposes. So outside of that, the the two projects that I have to have to not talk about are are moving along. Uh, it's going to take some time before I can actually talk about one of them. Uh, the other one, uh, maybe in about a, a couple of months, you know, easy. It'll 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 probably be in the news when it happens. So, but I can't talk about. It. I don't want to ruin it or you know, nothing like that. So, anyway, last podcast we covered. What did we cover? I can't even remember. Let me go here. Let's see. We covered, I think, the Battle of Saratoga and Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill. So today, the, the only reasonable thing to talk about would be the Battle of Kings Mountain and then the Battle of Yorktown. I could get into the seafaring battles and all that, but um, we'd be here all day. I might cover a few more in between here before I wrap up the whole independ- independence series. So before we get into the podcast, be sure to go give my good friend Jason a look-see. And remember that if you do like this podcast, if you like the series, and if you like what I'm doing, you can subscribe. You can subscribe to the podcast right here on Anchor for, uh, I think it's as little as 99 cents a month. It's up to you. It's not required to listen. Uh, it just helped me out a little bit because my poor laptop can't even run uh, Firefox. It shuts down after about five minutes. Got to get me a new one. Hint, hint, you know, it's late Christmas, but I'll, I'll still accept a Christmas gift. I'm, I'm kidding everybody. It's there if you want to donate or subscribe. Not asking. Just letting you know. All right, so let's just uh, take a quick break here for the ad, and we'll get right into it. So a lot of times in, when you're looking into early Tennessee history, especially, you know, during the state of Franklin times and before that, everything almost always comes back to the over-mountain men. It, you know, it, it always shows up because that was such a big part of what happened then. So before we get into, you know, the whole Battle of Kings Mountain, we got to talk about the Over Mountain Men. You know, 500 or so Over Mountain Men is what it says. Uh, there's actually about 900, uh, to- about 900 total uh, patriots, quote unquote. So what I'm reading this podcast is coming from Battlefields.org, U.S. History, 
uh, Massachusetts history, Carolina history, a couple others. So the Over Mountain Men, well, they weren't just your average everyday patriot, you know, wanting independence from the the big bad Britons, uh, British. They they were frontiersmen. They knew the mountains. They knew where to go. They knew how to use a gun. They knew how to fight. They knew how to survive. So when Lord Cornwallis said, when Lord Cornwallis said, I'm going to march over the mountains, hang their leaders, and lay waste to their country with fire and sword, you know, they, they took that as a pretty serious threat. They didn't like that too much. So they gathered up, up at Sycamore Shoals from all over, you know, at that time there was just a bunch of various uh, uh, various little stations, if you will, kind of like little forts scattered across the landscape, you know. They gathered them up and they went to Sycamore Shoals and then they marched. They took the victory trail right over the mountain and, well, they, you know, to, to just get ahead of ourselves here, they mopped the floor with them. So, they, when they heard what Lord Cornwallis said, they were ready. They they were just instantly mad, ready to defend what was theirs, because they had, were already mad at the state of Carolina because uh, they wasn't getting any support with the, the Native American raids. They were already mad, and they already didn't have a whole lot. They had to really fight for what they had. So... It was a ragtag bunch of men. They just made the most of what they had at that time. And they carried only what they could on their backs. Drove cattle along the trail as food as a food supply. And had rifles instead of muskets and were pretty skilled horsemen instead of that at, at that. There was a good a good many, you know, Isaac Shelby was part of it. Um Sam Phillips, John Sevier, William Campbell, Arthur Campbell, Charles McDowell, and Arthur Hampton. And um, a couple of my ancestors actually fought there too, uh, like Rodham Kenner and a couple of people on the Carmichael side of my family. So when the troops gathered at Sycamore Shoals at an outpost on the Watuga River, Watauga River, excuse me, uh, Minister Samuel Doak said unto the gathered troops, The enemy is marching hither to destroy your homes. Go forth then, in the strength of your manhood, to the aid of your brethren, the defense of your liberty, and the protection of your homes. And so then they began the march right on over to uh, Kings Mountain, which is where we're going to start this podcast. It's October 7th, 1780. Um, and a bunch of little patriot militias led by William Campbell, you know, all the all the all the aforementioned, you know, and a couple others like Edward Lacey, Ben Cleveland, and uh, William Chronicle. Well, it was nine hundred of them versus roughly eleven hundred British, so they were outnumbered, you know. Shelby decided to take on Ferguson and his men and learned of their plans. Um, Ferguson, you know, wanted to retreat, 
Major Patrick Ferguson. He he tried to retreat because he thought that there was ten thousand of of our of us, us little backwoods people around those mountains. So Ferguson tried to retreat from his forward position and pulls back closer to the main body of the British army. He dig in, he dug in and fortified a small sixty foot hill two miles inside the South Carolina border. And then an American scouting party learned of Ferguson's position and giving he gave militia commanders the intelligence they needed to launch an attack. Sensing an impending battle, American commanders told their men, don't wait for the word of command, let each one of you be your own officer and do the very best you can, quote unquote. And the American plan was pretty simple. It just basically assaulted the hill from every side possible. Campbell, uh, Colonel Campbell told his men to shout like hell and fight like devils. So early in the afternoon, the overmountain men would creep quietly towards Ferguson's position, and when the first shot rang out, the Americans attacked from all sides. Ferguson deployed his loyalist uh, militia in the center of the hilltop. Uh, he remains mounted and personally leads the counterattack against the Patriots, surging from the southwest. After firing a, a volley and fixing the bayonets, Ferguson's men blunt the overmountain men's advance, but it is only on one side of the hill. And the overmountain men continued an unabated attack from the other sides, using the undergrowth and woods to their advantage. Like I said, these people were from this land. The British were at a disadvantage because they were they'd never fought in any of this. They didn't know what to do. So one loyalist would later recall that the overmountain men looked like devils from the infernal regions. Tall, raw-boned, and with long matted hair. End quote. Ferguson and his men are surrounded and their additional counterattacks would ultimately fail to stop the Americans. The overmountain men continued their yelling and whooping as they you know, gathered around. With his defensive perimeter sh uh, shrinking, Ferguson told his men he tried to lead his men past the onslaught. Mounted on his horse, he was basically the perfect perfect target for his crack shot opponents, and he is hit multiple times. And while his body is hanging off his horse, <laughs> it goes it flees downhill. Sorry, that's not funny. Shortly after Ferguson's death, the loyalists would surrender. And and just as an aftermath, according to Battlefields.org, uh, 90 American casualties to 1,121 casualties. 28 American killed, 62 wounded. And the British had 290 killed, 163 wounded, with 668 missing and captured. Basically, they just mopped the floor with them. So, the, while the riflemen are victorious, it came at a cost. One over-mountain man... Uh, later recalled, the dead lay in heaps on all sides, while the groans of the wounded were heard in every direction. I could not help turning away from the scene before me. With horror, though exulting in the victory, I could not refrain from shedding tears. End quote. Do not know who said that. Kings Mountain, the backcountry militiamen, de demonstrated that they can coordinate and execute a battle plan. Their success encourages other patriot revolutionaries, you know, and this got word up to George Washington. Uh, at that time, he was General Washington. 
Uh, and he proclaims to his own army that the crude spirited, hardy determined volunteers who crossed the mountains served as proof of the spirit of the resources of the country. Loyalist elements in the North, in North Carolina and South Carolina, were, are intimidated, and Kings Mountain sets a scene for an American military resurgence. With the loss of his western flank force, uh, General Cornwallis falls back into South Carolina and delayed his planned invasion of North Carolina. So, th this is pretty important here because this was a big turning point in the war. Because the big bad British, who at that time were one of the strongest military forces in the world, got defeated by a bunch of backcountry folk. I mean, that just kind of speaks for itself. You know, they it was a huge morale blow for the British to be defeated by such an insignificant amount of people. And so, it would take a little while for Cornwallis to uh, come back from this, and then we'll just jump right into uh, Yorktown here, because he would go right up through the Carolinas into Yorktown. Uh, in the next year, this would be almost exactly a year later, uh, in 1781. So, let's see, Yorktown. And we'll just hit a little break here for Yorktown. So, just to back up here, you know, this was after six years of war before Yorktown came and went. You know, the, both armies were absolutely exhausted. The British only held a few coastal areas here in the States. And on the other side, across the pond, they were also waging a war against France and Spain. The, the conflict here was, it was unpopular. And there wasn't really an end in sight. For the colonies, they were being ran ragged because... There, it was already an enormous debt, the war was super expensive, there were food shortage, and there was a lack of morale among the soldiers. And they were, both sides were just really wanting to just stop. Now, going back to Kings Mountain, yes, that was a, that it reinvigorated some morale, you know, but they were just still so tired. There were so many casualties. So, the fall of 1781, the British would occupy Yorktown where Cornwallis intends to refit and resupply his 9,000-man army while he awaits supplies and much-needed reinforcements from the Royal Navy. The Continental Army seizes an opportunity. On receiving word that the French fleet will be available for a siege south of New Jersey, Washington and Rockambeau move their force of almost 8,000 men to south, south to Virginia and plan to join and lead about 12,000 12, other militia uh, French troops and Continental troops in a siege of Yorktown. On September 5th, while the Allied army is still en route, the French fleet guards the entrance to Chesapeake Bay. The Royal Navy attempted to sail up uh, the bay to, Cor to Cornwallis. It is met by warships at the mouth of the Chesapeake. In this encounter, they called the Battle of the Capes. The British fleet is soundly defeated and is forced to abandon Cornwallis' army at Yorktown, which pretty much just kind of seals their fate. Because this was 20,000 uh, American Continental soldiers and French to 9,000 British. Remember that. 
This was uh, General Washington, not president yet, and uh, Rockambo. I don't really know who he is. I'll have to look him up. Or maybe somebody would like to send me a message on who uh, this Mr. Rockambo man is. I never read about him. So just before the battle, uh, September 28th, this was a pretty long march for the American and French forces. They would arrive near Yorktown and would immediately begin the hard work of laying siege to Cornwallis and his men. Cornwallis has thrown up a series of redoubts on the outskirts of Yorktown, while the majority of his men hunker down in the somewhere in town. They hide. They didn't want no part of it. And with the help of French engineers, American and French troops begin to dig a series of parallel trenches in which troops and artillery uh, are able to get close enough to inflict actual serious damage on the British. And they work day and night on that. Soldiers of the combined forces employ, you know, they use spades and axes and create a perimeter line of trenches that will trap the British. As the work on the parallels continues, the British attempt to disrupt uh, our operations by using what little artillery they have left, which that doesn't really work. So they were already starved with ammunition, they didn't have much to go with, so they were trying to really just ration what they had. You know, it was almost, uh, it wasn't even really, it wouldn't have even done nothing because there were so many continental troops there that. It, even if they had used up all their ammunition, they still would have been outnumbered three to one. So by October the 9th, the Allied lines are now within musket range of the British and American and French artillery. They're all in one place. In the afternoon, the Allied barrage begins. The French operating the salvo on the American side, George Washington touches off with the first cannon to commence their assault. His artillery consists of 23 of three 24-pounders, three 18-pounders, and two 8-inch howitzers, six mortars, and there was about 14 guns. For nearly a week, the artillery barrage is ceaseless, shattering whatever nerve the British have remaining and punching holes in the British defenses. A few days later, on October the 11th, Washington orders troops to dig a second parallel 400 yards closer to the British lines. The British readouts uh, 9 and 10 prevent the second parallel from extending to the river, and the British are still able to reinforce the garrisons inside the readouts. They have to be taken by force, and the new line is in place by the morning of October 12th. So by October the 14th, after firing what was to the British an infinite, an infinite, infinite barrage of artillery in an attempt to weaken British defenses, American and French forces prepare a surprise assault on readouts 9 and 10. To maintain stealth, soldiers do not load or prime their weapon. The password for the operation is Rockambo, which the Americans translate as Rush On Boys. The assault commences with a divisionary attack on a readout further to the north of Yorktown. At 6.30 in the p.m., giving the appearance that the town itself was to be stormed, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Hamilton's force, which consisted of a detachment of about 400 light infantry, assaults Redoubt 10 with bayonets fixed and muskets unloaded to prevent the British soldiers from escaping. Uh, the oncoming onslaught, John Lauren, Lieutenant Colonel John Lauren troops, covers the rear of the Redoubt. 
as American troops, you know, basically go in and just destroy the British there. The, the British are alerted in anyway, and a British sentry would fire at the Americans, and the Americans proceeded to assault on the fortification, climbing over the parapet and descending into the redoubt. This would cause serious close quarters combat. You know, some pretty good fighting there, but the British are overwhelmed. It's a pretty stunning victory, and the Amer Americans only sustained 34 casualties. At the same time, the French would also assault Redoubt 9, and after an equally fierce firefight, they were able to wrestle the control from the British. Cornwallis's position is untenable as the Franco-American alliance has artillery on three of his sides with additional new pieces positioned in Redoubts 9 and 10. After their fall, in a last-ditch effort, Cornwallis orders a futile counterattack on October the 15th, which failed miserably. So, on the morning of October 17th, a single British drummer boy beating, beating the sound of parley, and the British officer waving a white handkerchief tied to the end of a sword are seen on the parapet at the forward position of the British lines. Blindfolded and brought inside American lines, the British officer secures terms of surrender for the British Army. And on October 19th, in a field outside of Yorktown, the capitulation takes place as the British troops and their Hessian allies, with flags furled and cased, march sullenly between the contingents of American and French forces. The British seek honorable terms of surrender, but Washington refuses, as American forces were denied that honor in South Carolina earlier in the war. So, and just to go over the casualties here, it was 389 American casualties to 8,000 uh, British casualties. It was 88, 88 American killed and 142 uh, British were killed, 326 British wounded, and uh, 7,400 British were missing and captured. So basically, man, we mopped the floor with the British there too. So the Battle of Yorktown would it would basically be the end of the British war efforts. It's said that the British, uh, according to myth and legend anyway, the British played the tune the world's turned upside down during the surrender at Yorktown. It's, it, it's become a part of American folklore. I've heard it a lot in the history classes. I don't know if it's true or not. I guess we never will. But the world would change that day as the military operations for the War of Independence would cease. And when the news of Cornwallis' surrender reached London on November 25th, Prime Minister Lord, Prime Minister Lord North declares, Oh God, it is all over, it is all over. On March 5th, 1782, Parliament passes a bill authorizing the government to make peace with America. Lord North would resign 15 days later, although it takes the Americans two more years of what should be skillful diplomacy to formally secure their independence through the Treaty of Paris. The war is won with the British defeat at Yorktown. So this wouldn't this would formally end the fighting or this would formally end the war, but there was some fighting that took on that still went on in other places, but it was just it wasn't anything significant. So this is this has been a pretty good podcast. I think I'll do it again. Um, on something else. I'll cover 
I think I'll cover other aspects of the war too. Maybe, maybe some parts from the British perspective as well. So, with all that being said, we're here at 25, 24 minutes. We'll uh, get it off here. If you made it this far in the podcast, just uh, remember that you can subscribe to the podcast here on Anchor. Um, nothing's ever came out of the Patreon, so maybe I'll just start focusing on the Anchor and you know, maybe post the support links on the old history page. So, this is the first podcast recorded in the new year. I uh, hope everybody has a great year ahead. And stay with me on here on Old History, and we'll see what comes out of it. Have a great rest of your weekend and a great week.